Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, again, if you are, uh, don't have a Bible, please uh, feel free to grab a Bible in front of the rack, in, uh, uh, right in front of your chair. And we're on page 10, uh, 1016 uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5. And we are looking at something that is so, so, so foundational to the Christian life, but so, so, so easy to forget, so, so difficult and impossible to do in our own strength. If I were to ask you what some of the defining marks of a Christian what are they? I wonder what your answers would be or what would come to your mind. I wrote down several examples um, of answers that, that we would typically uh, answer with to the question, what are some defining marks of a Christian? And these are all right answers. So, for instance, you could say love is a defining mark of the Christian, right? I mean, what did Jesus say? By this shall all men know you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Love is, is a crucial mark of Christ followers. Or what about faith? That, that uh, Christ followers are to be people of faith. Is it not faith? the faith that was given to us by, by our God, the very entryway into, into our salvation, repentance and faith. In fact, the Bible calls us as God's people to put on the spiritual armor and to put on, the, uh, to put on faith. And right along with faith, we have hope. Remember Paul's, uh, it's called the tr Paul's triad or Paul's three things he always puts together in his letters, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. But what we could say hope, I mean, w without hope, we, uh, if we have a false hope, Paul says, man, we're, we're to be most pitied out of, out of anybody if, if the hope that we have as Christ followers in the resurrection that's to come. If, if that's not true. Repentance. We talked a little bit about that. Uh, a defining mark of the Christian should be repentance. That re we repent not just at salvation, as we turn from, from our sins and those things we're clinging to as our Savior and look to the one true Savior, but every day of our life is to be defined by repentance. Like we just sang about, have mercy on me, O God. Our lives are to be marked by forgiveness. We, we forgive one another as we've been forgiven by Jesus. Our lives, you could answer, are to be marked by peace. The peace that passes all understanding. That because we have a peace now with God that our sins have been cleansed, we now can have a peace in life. Despite what circumstances um, show us despite what's happening to us. One more answer I wrote down was joy. All of these things that, that we've received from Christ are to produce joy in our lives. Sadly, many times, Christians can be the most unjoyful people, the most, the most caustic and, and bitter people many times that are negative about everything. And you feel depressed being around them. 
That shouldn't be a mark of Christianity. Joy should be. On and on the list could go. But what we're, what we're still seeking to do uh, over this past month is we're seeking to set the tone for the new year. And I want us to look at a characteristic, a mark of a Christian that was not mentioned in any of the, the lists that I just talked through. But this quality is so crucial to our spiritual health and well-being. It's the quality, the characteristic that's to define Christ's people, and that is humility. Unfortunately, humility is a lot like prayer. Because prayer is so many times overlooked as something that is important, but unnecessary. It's something we talk about and we know should be a part of our lives, should be a part of, the, of, of our church, but yet... It's great if we get there, but yet it's something to overlook. That's how humility is many times. But what we need to see and what we need to realize, what we're going to see today from our text, is humility forms the very foundation of our existence as the children of God. Without humility, there is no true Christian walk. Case in point is salvation. Jesus says unless an individual humbles himself and becomes as a little child, they will in no wise see or inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about you become a child and you start babbling and you start um, acting like a child again. No, it's talking about the faith, the humility of a child. Just as humility is to characterize the entryway into salvation as we see that we are in utter need, that we are helpless before a holy, almighty God. We need the works of someone else. So in our Christian life, humility is to be the stamp of our faith. In fact, it could be very easily be said that humility is the mouth of from which all other rivers flow. You see, if I'm not humble, then more than likely I'm not going to be in much prayer because I'm not going to see my need for it. If, I, if humility does not characterize my life, I'm more than likely not going to be showing a love for one another because I have a greater love for self. If my life is not marked by humility, I'm probably not going to have much of a joy because my joy will be marked on what I do or don't do. And unfortunately, if you're like me, if you're looking simply within, uh -uh, a, a reason not to have joy is more so the case than a reason to have joy. Humility is the mouth from which all other rivers flow. So I want to ask you today, are you seeking in the grace of God to embrace humility in your life? Because as we're going to see over the next two weeks, it does take an embracing of humility. The key sentence that we are going to look at this morning, I'm going to read it and then I'd like you to read it with me is this. 
Humility will determine the depth and quality of your spiritual walk. Let's change that your to my as we read it together, okay? Ready? Let's read it together. Humility will determine the depth and the quality of my spiritual walk. Do you want to walk in closeness with your Savior? Do you want to not just study about God's Word, but live in God's Word? Then humility is going to have to be a part of your life, and the journey towards humility is not always pleasant. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about humility. What it means to be a humble Christian. Let's pray together and let's ask the Lord to teach us. Father, I pray that you would teach us from the scriptures today. Father, while you may use some of the things that I say in expounding upon the text of scripture, Lord, we know it's your word that does not return void. It's not the words of the preacher. So Lord, we ask for the divine assistance of the Holy Spirit to open our hearts, to open our minds, to show us the true riches of what 1 Peter 5 is telling us. Lord, because without the aid, the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Father, this is just one more message to chalk up that we've sat through and heard. So Lord, we were in complete dependence upon you. Father, I pray that you would be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read 1 Peter 5. We're going to start reading at verse 5. And we're going to read to to verse 11, but we're only going to focus over the next two weeks at the the end the, the second half of verse 5 up to verse 7. But let's read this uh, passage to get the idea of what it's talking about. Verse 5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And we'll talk about what precedes that. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with, what is it? Humility. And notice specifically, he begins by saying, toward one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud. But, here's the contrast, he gives grace to the humble. So what do we take in light of this? Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties. Your translation may read cares. Your cares, your anxieties, your worries upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. So what do we take away from all of this? Verse 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Aren't those great words? Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We see from this passage the foundational priority of humility. If you want in your life what verse 10 talks about, to be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established, it requires humility. So we are going to look over the next three weeks at three key principles regarding humility that we can draw out of verses 5 through 7. If humility is so important, we need to see what Scripture says in this passage regarding humility. And we're going to look at the first principle this morning. If we're to be people characterized by humility, if we are to be humble Christians, number one, you must embrace humility as a process you must embrace humility of a pro- in, as a process now we see from verse 5 that this is a process in the life of every believer in other words if we have uh, however many people that that are in this auditorium it's not one third of us must embrace the process of humility. But the other two-thirds of us are are free to not worry about it. Or even two-thirds, or even everybody, but just a handful of people. We all must embrace humility and the process that God brings us through. Verse 5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you. You see, we are commanded to be people of humility. We are to clothe ourselves. Isn't it a joy if you have younger uh, siblings or younger children or nephews or uh, nieces or whatever the case may be, isn't it a joy that, that time in their lives when they can actually clothe themselves? Maybe it's not when you see how they come out ready to go to church Sunday morning or Monday at school. But but we have here, Paul gives us an imagery of clothing. And that's so interesting because clothing is is often indicative of someone's style or someone's personality. You know, you notice how it's always the smart people that wear the bow ties? (laughs) Or, you know, there, there are certain looks that, you know, people want to express themselves with, with their clothing. Well, here Paul instructs Christians how they are to clothe themselves. And when we clothe ourselves, it's interesting because that clothing that we put on ourselves, it encompasses 
all that we do and who we are. So we're wearing clothes, going about our whole day. Our clothing is a part of ourselves, right? Everything that we do, we do in the midst of this clothing. And Paul says that everything that the Christian is to do is to be cloaked, to be surrounded with humility. It's it's the same idea we've just gone through a long study in 2016 on the book of Colossians. Do you remember what Paul said in Colossians when he said, here are things that we need to put off, hatred, Envy, backbiting, all of these things. We need to put those off. Those don't characterize the follower of Jesus. That characterizes the old life. And he says, here is what you are to put on. Love. You're to put on uh, meekness, all of these things. The same imagery of putting on clothing. This is what is to characterize the believer. It's all-encompassing. But however, what we must realize is this is also not a one-time act. To clothe ourselves is not a one-time act. How many of you clothe yourselves once in your life and, and, and man, you're still going? Now, when you're five years old, that's excusable, right? Not when you're 35, It's not a one-time action. In this text, it's just talking all-encompass. It's not saying anything about the timing. He's just putting it out there. He says, clothe yourselves. Uh, uh, Believer, this is what you're to do. But in reality, this is a, a continual act. This has to be viewed as a process. In other words, we never arrive. Many of you have probably heard individuals say as a joke, um, well, you know, I'm going to write a book, Humility and How I Obtained It. The person that writes that book probably didn't really attain the humility. Newsflash. We're all about the fake news stuff, right? (laughs) There's never a time that one arrives. You can't ever say, you know what, I'm now perfectly dressed. You know, the only thing that we are perfectly dressed in is the righteousness of Jesus. And even that, while it is a one-time event, the outworking of our faith to, to that practical everyday living and what we have been given in Christ, that is a process to where one day in eternity that will be combined. Amen? Praise the Lord. But until that day, this is a process. In other words, our sanctification or our becoming more like Jesus is a process. And then as we've already seen, this is a command to everyone. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you. No exceptions. If you notice in uh, the beginning of chapter 5, Paul is addressing, at the beginning of this chapter, he's addressing the elders, the spiritual leaders of the church, of the churches that are scattered abroad. 
And he tells them how they are to elder, how they are to pastor. And then he, he, he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. The elders that he's just referring to. And he's making a little bit of a characterization here. He's saying that typically the spiritual elders in the, in the church are those who are older. The people that he, he pinpoints those who are younger because typically the individuals that want to go and, and blaze their own trail are those who are younger. And he's saying, look, the elders have the, the spiritual authority in the church and, and as a part of the church to help guide and protect you. This isn't a, a monarchy where they're telling uh, their congregation every little thing, but the spiritual oversight and protection. He's saying, you younger ones, be subject to your elders. And lest those who are established Christians think, yeah, you know, that younger generation, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Paul says, ah, but clothe yourselves, all of you. You see, those who are younger to be subject to the elders requires humility, and guess what? It requires humility on every single individual's part. You don't somehow all of a sudden turn 70 and you've arrived. And man, there's no longer a need for me to strive in my faith. There's no longer a need for me to fix my eyes, as Paul says, on the high calling of God in Christ Jesus and to strive to that end, to lay hold, the Bible says, on eternal life. Not that we are earning eternal life, but that we are striving uh, that that is a reality in our life and, and that is shown through our actions and through our efforts. This is a command to all of us. In fact, that phrase, all of you, is emphasized in this text. It's not one, it's not two. All of us have this need for humility. You see, it is a process in the life of every believer. We know, in fact, before you came through these doors, you knew already, if, if you're a Christian, that you should clothe yourself in humility. He's not saying anything new to you. But let's go a little deeper. Not only in embracing humility as a process, must we realize this is a process in the life of every believer, no exceptions. But this is a process, ultimately, in how we view ourselves. This is a process, ultimately, in how we view ourselves. Notice, before he ever gets to the end of verse 5, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. That's interesting. He could begin with God. Clothe yourselves, all of you, toward one another. As I've already mentioned, we have to see the first, the first principle in, in viewing ourselves with humility is we have to realize this is the premise or the entryway to the Christian life. I mean, our spiritual existence is evidence in the need for humility to humble ourselves. 
And the only way that we humble ourselves is we first of all see the bankruptcy of self. You see, as long as you're on your high horse, there's going to be no humility. As long as you're looking at other people and what they are doing wrong and how their thoughts and opinions and and all of those things are so dead wrong and you're so right, man, there's no humility. Do you see the bankruptcy of self? I mean, when you're singing a song like have mercy upon me, are those just words on a screen or do you say, man, that echoes my soul. Man, there is nothing in me that I bring to the table. Left to myself, I am destined for a path of destruction. You know, when difficulties, and we're going to talk about difficulties later, and especially next week, we're going to talk in detail about those anxieties, those worries um, that we are to cast upon him, and those trials, those sufferings that God allows into our life, and many times purposefully brings into our life. You know what those are? Those are God's rescue um, pursuits of us. Because he knows if we are left to ourselves and left to our own comforts, that man, we, we're going to be filled with pride and self-dependence. And man, we're going to go on a fast track down the highway of destruction. We are our own worst enemies. Apart from Jesus... In His sustaining grace in our lives, we're in trouble. Secondly, the reality of our faith is seen, as the text says, in how we relate to one another. So not only do we start with, with the spiritual foundation that, that humility is realizing the bankruptcy of self, just like at salvation, and we as believers, especially if we've been believers for a while, we start to lose that sense of bankruptcy. We somehow think that we've earned enough brownie points with God that, that you know, um, we're doing Him some favors, but then the reality of the bankruptcy of self manifests itself in how we relate to one another. Because man, if I see that I'm in dire need of God's grace every day of my life, guess what? That makes me more prone to offer grace to someone else. Man, if I realize really what Ephesians 2 talks about, if you realize what Ephesians 2 talks about, about when we were once spiritually dead, and how all, I mean, there's no depth of wickedness that comes out of our human hearts, but what Jesus saved us from, and then we have that coworker that is just, is just actively showing with no shame the depravity of their hearts. We start to lose our judgmental tone and we start to see and experience a tone of love, of pity, of a desire that they have the same liberation and freedom that you experienced. You see, this is so true 
within the church that we are to show love and unity with one another even amidst differences or disagreements. Because we are a people marked by humility, but this is also true outside the church. And by the way, the context of 1 Peter is how to engage a world when you are living as a Christian in exile in that world. The thrust here is living amongst those who are outsiders. And we're not going to live with the humility to those who are outsiders unless there is a humility amongst us as the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. But then we also see thirdly, this this process and how we view ourselves that it's seen in how we relate to one another, but the reality of our faith is then seen in our receiving of grace. What's the incentive for having humility, clothing ourselves with humility, and having that same humility toward one another? It is, as the last part of verse 5 says, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. If there is a storyline in the Scriptures that you see over and over and over again is that God's grace is toward those who are lowly and who are humble. I mean, God takes takes David, the, the, the least of all his brothers, and makes him a king. God takes Moses, who is exiled from Egypt because of fear for his life, and he's tending the sheep. Talk about Uh, the Egyptians talking about what wasted potential and what a failure, and yet he makes him to be used by God to lead his people out of Egypt. You take a person like Paul who was killing Christians, and boy, does God have an ironic plan. He says, I'm going to make the most feared person among the Christians be the leader of the Christians. And guess what? He's going to be the one suffering for his faith. If there's ever anything that we see in God's character, it is that pride is disgusting to God. Pride is the very thing that casts, that where God judged Satan, cast him out of heaven. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a a reference to Proverbs 3.34. It says, toward the scorners, guess what? He is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. He gives grace. James 4.6, right along with what Peter is saying, James says this to to the Jewish church. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, and again, quoting Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen, God's rescuing favor are on those who are humble. Is it that somehow we earn God's favor by being humble? No, 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 no. 
Remember, Jesus has earned anything, has earned everything that God gives us. Jesus has earned that by his righteousness on this earth and his death on the cross. We don't somehow earn things from God. We're not entitled. It is the fact that if God has truly rescued us, then a marker of the genuineness of our conversion and our faith will be our humility. A token of the graciousness that we have received from God is humility. In other words, if you are living in divisions in your life and you are causing controversy and schisms and and people are afraid to be around you and you are offending people, guess what? You are living as an unbeliever who has not received the grace and favor of God. That's why Paul says, let there not be schisms in the body. Because that is opposite to to what the call of Christianity is. That's paganism. Listen to what Matthew 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount says. As we see the characteristic of those who are God's people. It says, he opened his mouth, Jesus opened his mouth and taught them saying, and listen to how this just bleeds humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And ladies, you're going to be doing a study on these verses. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. It's what, what was promised to, the, uh, to God's people, uh, to Israel, and we see it is what is fulfilled for all of God's people at the end of God's plan. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. Why? Because they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Because they're the ones that will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Do you see any characteristic where pride could characterize that type of person? A kingdom citizen. Do you see anything? Pride has no life, or no part in the life of a believer. It just doesn't. It stems from realizing the utter bankruptcy of our own hearts. When we realize that and we are filled with the love of Jesus, that man, Jesus loves me even though this is true about me. And man, we could go on and on with the list of things. Yet Jesus died for me and saved my soul knowing even as a believer how I just mess things up and fail him and sin against him the way I do, but Jesus still gave himself for me. 
man, when that really becomes a reality of our hearts, when we are encompassed with the love of, the, of Christ through the gospel, that them then pours out to other people. And other people can see this person has truly received the grace of God. This is a person on whom God's favor rests. Not because he somehow earned it, but because I see it in how he lives. I see it in how he treats others, how she treats others. And here's where we get a little bit harder. If, if, if you had a shovel, we're kind of taking out the top grass and we're kind of getting into some of the soil and then Mike could tell you what the second layer of soil we'd get into is. He, he eats soil. <laughs> he eats it. I don't, it's weird. Small groups are awkward. <laughs> but it's a, that's getting you back for the New Year's thing. <laughs> It's a process of allowing God to work. If you're wanting to be characterized as a humble Christian, man, you're going to have to go through the process of allowing God to work. We're going to stop at the beginning of, 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 chap, of the first half of verse 6. Let's read it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, I've told you this before, but as a reminder, whenever you see the word therefore, you ask, okay, what's it talking about? It's, it's tying in something that was previous. And we see the tying in again at verse 5 of the need for humility, both for those who are younger and for all people to, ha to be clothed in humility. And, and the immediate reason is, is the, 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 the latter part of verse 5, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're going to walk in light of your faith of who you say you are, man, we better have humility. So therefore, we're to humble ourselves. There's a no-brainer. Hey, clothe yourself with humility. Here's the reason why. Therefore, humble yourselves. And what we have to realize is that here is an example of where divine agency and human responsibility meet. You know, scriptures talk about the, this, this hard to be able to tie together of, of God's work and our work. I mean, that's all throughout scripture, and that's because God's God, and we can't categorize God. We see that in salvation. That the scriptures say, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then we also see scripture says that, that those who the Father has called are the ones who will call upon him in faith. We see, we see uh, two ideas presented together and we can't explain it in, in human terms because we're not God. And we see in this command in verse 6, humble yourselves, a divine agency and human responsibility coming together. Why? Because the command is simply to humble yourselves. But here's where it gets interesting. This is actually a passive command. You could literally read this, be humbled, therefore. You see, the avenue to humility is not you and I saying, okay, I just heard a message on humility. I'm going to humble myself. That may work 
on the ride home, but it's not going to last. We can't do it. We have to have someone else work that into our life. You see, the avenue to humility is God's working. And get this, and here's, here's where the command has an active sense to it, yet also this passive sense, not only to humble ourselves, but to be humbled. The avenue, the avenue to humility is God's working in our lives, and then our proper response to God's working in our life. You see, how many times does God seek to work in our lives and we try to run from that? Case in point, ever hear the story of Jonah? Did a series on that a couple years ago. Perfect picture of a guy who ran. Could he outrun God? (laughs) If you're a child of God, if you're truly His, the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. You can't outrun God. But we try. You see, we humble ourselves by allowing ourselves to be humbled by God. I mean, how many times can I think in my life where I think, you know, I got this, and, and here we go, and then, you know, even independence from other people. Independence from other people saying, you know what? Um, got this thing together in this nice package, so to speak, and God allows adversity into my life, reminds me of my need for Him, but also reminds me of my need for my brothers and sisters. You see, the realm of this command to not only humble ourselves by responding to God's humbling as He humbles us, but we do this in a specific realm. What's that realm? Under the mighty hand of God. That is so important. You see, folks, God is not in the business of humbling us to ridicule us. God is not in the business of humbling us to make fun of us. Maybe growing up, you would have the bully in your school, or maybe it was your sibling. Uh, too many times I was that sibling. That would just, that would just uh, pounce on the other person's mistake. And then that other person, whether meaning to or not, I mean, you're left feeling worthless, ashamed, embarrassed. God does allow us to shame ourselves, but He does it constructively. God never ridicules His children. When we are humbling ourselves, when we allow ourselves to be humbled and say, God, I am going to bow the knee to You in the midst of this trial, realizing that You are humbling me, we can do it because of who He is. We know His character. He is not going to let us down. In fact, this is a mighty hand. Now, humility implies weakness, doesn't it? Or, uh, humility, we many times think, implies weak, weakness. And in a sense, 
in a sense, when it, when it involves our vertical relationship with God and us, humbling ourselves does say, Lord, we are weak and finite creatures. Humility does imply a helplessness when it is between God and I. That God, I am helpless without you. Now, humility towards one another, I can show humility to you, you can show humility to me, and it doesn't imply that you're some weak person or helpless, but you're, you're putting others ahead of yourself. But man, when it, beco- when it comes to God, our humility is, is, is saying, God, we are helpless, like we've talked about. But guess what the contrast is, and that's why Paul, why Paul or Peter brings this, this in. We are admitting our helplessness and embracing our weakness because he's the one that's mighty, amen? We're not left to die or to just be stranded. In fact, I want to take you through just a few passages as we close. Regarding this under the mighty hand of God, you may, what does this mean? Well, first of all, it means that God is the agent of our humility, We've already talked about this. Humility must come from God himself. You can't fake it. You can't write that book. I mean, you can fake it, but only for so long. The best person that knows uh, my humility or lack of humility is Rachel. Don't ask her how I'm doing. Can't fake it. Maybe from, if somebody sees you occasionally, but not those who truly know you. And before we get to those passages, I just want to share you one, uh, one statement that, that, that one person said regarding God as the agent of our humility. The humbling, he says, enjoined, or, or that he uses in verse 6, probably means that they are to accept the suffering that God has ordained as his will instead of resisting and chafing against his will while suffering. So again, it's, it's allowing God to work in our life to humble ourselves in our response to that humbling. We can either be self-dependent and say, I don't need God, I got it all handled, but that's only going to be effective for so long. So this phrase, under the mighty hand of God, it speaks as God is the agent of our humility, but also the fact that we can trust God in the process of humility. Again, he's delivering us from self. Look at where a few places where this phrase, mighty hand of God, is used in the scriptures. Exodus 3.19. God's speaking to Moses about Pharaoh. He says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by what? A mighty hand. Deuteronomy 4.34. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war. What's that phrase say? By a mighty hand. In other words, uh, all those plagues on Egypt, all those things that happened, they can all be summarized by a mighty hand. Or how about Daniel 9.15? Again, looking back at the Exodus. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt by what? A mighty hand. And have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. 
I just want to give you a few thoughts regarding what we see by this repetition of mighty hand. First of all, as we read that in 1 Peter, that's a loaded term. Peter, who knows the Hebrew Scriptures, he himself is a Jew, he doesn't just by accident use that phrase, a mighty hand. In other, what he's saying is the God that you are submitting to, that you are humble, allowing to humble you and responding properly to it, man, he's trusted and he's tried. He hasn't lost one of his people before. He's sovereign, he's mighty, and he's been at work with his people from the beginning of time. Don't be afraid to humble yourselves. 